Then Joseph, Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry and put each one's money at the top of his bag. Put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag, along with his grain money. So he did as Joseph told him. At morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. They had not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, get up, pursue the man, men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What you have done is wrong. When he overtook them, he said these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord say these things? Your servants could not possibly do such a thing. We even brought back to you from the land, land of Canaan the money we found at the top of our bags. How could we steal gold and silver from, our, from your master's house? If any of us is found to have it, he must die, and we will all become my Lord's slaves. The steward replied, What you have said is right, but only the one who is found to have it will be my slave. The rest of you will be blameless. So each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. What is this you have done? Joseph said to them. Didn't you know that a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one whose possession in, in whose possession the cup was found. Then Joseph said, I swear I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. But jo Judah approached him and said, Sir, please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry of your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, my Lord, we have an elderly father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. The boy's brother is dead. He is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him to me so I can see him. But we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, if your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. This is what happened when we went back to your servant, my father. We reported your words to him. But our father said, go again and buy some food. We told him, we cannot go down unless your younger, our younger brother goes with us. So if our younger brother isn't with us, we cannot see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, one left. I said he must have been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him again. If you also take this one from me, and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. So if I come to my servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up in the boy's life, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And then your servant will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, If I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt of sinning against you, my father. 
Now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I cannot bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Thanks so much, Christelle. Hi, everyone. Great to see you all here tonight. And uh, I add my welcome to Matt's, and especially if anyone's new visiting with us tonight, it's fantastic that you are here. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to lead us in prayer before we start to have a look at uh, a, this passage that Christelle just read for us. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that as we read tonight, salvation, there is no salvation in anyone else other than Jesus that you have given us him in order that we must be saved. Lord, please help us tonight as we listen to your word about Joseph and Judah and we see what you did way back then. Please direct our hearts and our minds to you and to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Saviour. Lord, please be at work among us by your Holy Spirit tonight as we... Uh, open your word. Help me to speak clearly and all of us to be able to focus our hearts and minds on what you say. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start tonight by telling you the story of this woman. Some of you might have heard of her before. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Interesting name, isn't it? Rosaria Butterfield. And she wrote this book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And uh, you have to say that she was you would have thought one of the people least likely to, be, to become a Christian. And she says that about herself as well. She was a lecturer at a university in New York. She was teaching critical theory uh, and specialising in queer theory. And she herself was a strong advocate for LGBTQIQ uh, causes on her campus. And uh, she was, uh, identified herself as a lesbian and was living in a same-sex relationship with her female partner. And as part of her studies, she started researching the religious right in America. And in her own words, uh, she was trying to write about their politics of hatred against people like me. So she saw herself as, and Christians as at loggerheads with each other. Uh, but uh, when she wrote this paper, a Presbyterian minister actually got in touch with her and said, I'd love to talk with you about this. And uh, he invited her, along his wife as well, invited Rosaria around for dinner. And they started talking. And they kept talking. And they listened a lot to her. And uh, they started reading the Bible together. They listened to her objections. They answered her questions. And over a period of time, her life was totally changed. And she gave her life to Jesus. And for her, that meant total change in her life because uh, all of the people that she'd hung out with before now didn't want to hang out with her anymore. She lost her job at the university. And uh, she said that the only thing that she kept after becoming a Christian was her dog. That was the only one who uh, still wanted to know her. But what a change. What a change that God brought about in her life. I wonder if... Uh, you sometimes look at people and wonder, how could that person ever become a Christian? They seem perhaps to be so closed 
to God or to anything Christian at all. Maybe they seem so far away morally or spiritually. They don't think about God at all. Maybe you're thinking even now as I'm speaking of someone out there or some group of people out there that you think, oh, they could never become a Christian. Or more likely, maybe you're thinking of someone much closer to home, maybe even someone in your own family or one of your friends at your work or your study. Maybe it's even you. Could be the case that uh, people are here tonight who find it hard to imagine that they could ever be persuaded to become a full-on follower of Jesus. Well, tonight we're going to see a very encouraging truth from God's word. Here it is. God changes people. God, in all his power, changes people like you and me, people like Rosaria Butterfield. We might not be able to uh, see how it could be that someone could ever come to Christ but God can save even the worst of sinners. That's quoting the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who described himself as the worst of sinners. God changes people. And we see this very clearly in our story uh, that we're looking at and we're working through of Joseph and his brothers, especially one brother called Judah. Here's how I think that things hang together through this long story in Genesis. It goes from 37 right through to the end of chapter 50. We'll look at the last three chapters later tonight. But uh, next, Sorry, next week. But uh, last week, we looked at the purple bits. We started in chapter 37. There was kind of an introduction where Joseph is sold into slavery. And then we saw in chapters 39 to 41 how God raises him up from being a slave to being the ruler of all Egypt so that he's able to be a blessing to all nations as God had promised and so that he's able to save his family when a famine comes and they can come down and get grain from him. It was an amazing story of Joseph. But there's another story that goes on through these chapters and they're intertwined together and that is the story of Judah and his brothers. You see, to save this family... Not only did God have to raise up Joseph to be the the king and the saviour, but he had to bring the brothers who hated him and sold him into slavery to change their hearts so that they would come to him and that they would bow down before him and uh, seek his mercy and receive salvation from him in the form of, in this case, food. And so God had to do this other amazing thing, and that's the, uh, the bit that fits in there in green. Uh, The scene is set in chapter 38, where we get another kind of introductory chapter, this time not to Joseph, but to Judah, and we see the the depths of his sin in that chapter. And then in chapters 42 to 47, we see the amazing way that God changes hearts and brings the whole family down to Egypt and to Joseph. And it's a beautiful story. If you haven't read it before, I really commend to you, read it, the whole thing. But let me show it to you tonight under three headings. The first is that God changed Judah. The second is uh, we're going to ask the question, how did he do it? How did it happen? And then what was the outcome? What results flowed from it? So first, God changed Judah. The change in this man through the story is massive. From Judah at the beginning to the end. We first met him in chapter 37 
where he is one of the brothers who hated Joseph and wanted to kill him. And then it was Judah who actually suggested that they should sell him into slavery. And then he was one of those who lied to their father Jacob, who loved Joseph, but they took Joseph's robe and they killed a goat and put blood on it and told Jacob that he'd been eaten by a wild animal. And uh, Jacob, the father, was heartbroken and uh, for the next 20 years he was grieving for his son. But they never came clean and told him what had really happened, that he could well have been alive. You see, Judah knew that Joseph was his own brother, but he didn't care. He sold him into slavery. He knew how much his father loved Joseph, but he didn't care. He lived with this and kept this lie going for 20 years. And uh, he knew that God had revealed to the whole family that Joseph was, uh, in his plan, going to be destined to rule, that they would bow down to him. But he didn't care about God either. And that's just the start of the story of this man, Judah. We haven't even got to chapter 38 where we see the real depths of his sin. Uh, It gets worse. The first thing that Judah does at the beginning of chapter 38 is that he moves away from Jacob and his family. We're not told why he moved away, but I think we can guess. Imagine what it would have been like to get up every day with that on your conscience and seeing your dad grieving in the way that Jacob was. Uh, He had to get away out of there. And he moves away, and uh, it's kind of a thing that I think we can see happening still today, not perhaps in quite the extent of uh, what Judah did, but often in my experience, when someone is kind of getting into something that they know is wrong before God, one of the first reactions is to kind of start to distance yourself from God and his people. Uh, because it's, it's, it doesn't feel good to be in church if you know that you're doing something that's contrary to God's will feels much better to stay away and uh, kind of not be challenged or or feel bad about that. And so people tend to stop coming to church, stop hanging out with Christian friends and and kind of slowly but surely go off and live a non-Christian life. And that's what we see happen here with Judah. He distances himself from God's people and uh, he starts to live a thoroughly godless life. In chapter 38, it gets complicated, so I'm not going to go through all the details. It's kind of, uh, you know, AO rated, let me tell you, if you read through it. Uh, But in summary, what happens is he marries a Canaanite woman, someone who's not one of God's people. Uh, He won't do the right thing and uh, preserve the family line of his oldest son when the son dies. And then he goes up to what seems like some kind of pagan religious festival And he sleeps with a woman who he thinks is a prostitute, as if it's okay to sleep with a woman who's a prostitute. Uh, And uh, then he actually finds out that this woman was his daughter-in-law, whose name is Tamar. And then he finds out that Tamar, I told you it's pretty bad, then he finds out that Tamar is pregnant. And he's outraged. And hypocritically, he calls, out, calls her out and calls for her to be burnt to death. Now, how would we describe this man, Judah? I want you to say just in our Aussie kind of lingo, what kind of words would you use to describe this guy? I want you to, this is, yeah, what would you say? Deceitful. 
Deceitful, yeah, what else? Can we get worse than that? A bit of a gronk. A gronk, okay. Well, I haven't had that one in any other congregations. Yeah, a gronk, okay. What else? What else would you say? A dropkick. Yep. A scumbag. Who said that? Yeah, you must be my generation. That's what I would have called him, a scumbag. Uh, maybe even a creep. That's what he is. He's a pretty creepy guy, isn't he? Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. And it's interesting, in chapter 38, all through the chapter, like chapter 37, God is not even mentioned once. This is a totally godless situation and man. But by the time we get to chapter 44, the passage that Christelle read for us, we see a totally changed man. Before, he hated the son that Jacob loved and sold him into slavery. But now there's a new favourite son, Jacob's younger brother, Benjamin. Now, I'm going to blow your minds here with a diagram. Are you ready for it? You can take that in, I'm sure, straight away. It's a family tree. You thought you had a complicated family. Jacob is at the top. He had four wives, or two wives and two concubines. And his favourite wife was Rachel, who's on that end. And uh, Rachel had two sons late in, uh, in the peace in Jacob's life. Joseph and Benjamin. And not only that, as Rachel was giving birth to Benjamin, she died. And so these two sons were really precious to their father, Jacob. You can see Judah there, he's son number four, uh, one of the sons of uh, his other wife, Leah. So that's the, uh, that's the family situation. Joseph was very precious, and then Benjamin kind of took over in Jacob's heart as the, the dearly loved son. So now uh, Joseph has already been sold into slavery, but there's a new favourite son, uh, Benjamin. And Joseph has set things up down in Egypt uh, by planting a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. When he gave him the grain to go back, he put in this uh, silver cup so that it looks like Benjamin will have to become a slave in Egypt. It's a familiar story, isn't it? Already one beloved son has become a slave in Egypt. But this time, Judah speaks up. The same man who suggested that they sell Joseph, he speaks up to stop this, and he offers himself to be a slave instead of his brother, Benjamin. Do you see what a change that is in this man? Before, he led the way selling his brother into slavery. But now he leads the way saving his brother from slavery, even by offering to go there himself. What a change. Before, he was willing to lie to his father and uh, hold him in that state of grief for 20 years. But now he cares for his father and he doesn't want to see him grieved anymore. Look at uh, what Judah says. He says, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave. That the Lord there is Joseph, not God. In the place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. He has changed massively, hasn't he? From a selfish gronk, scumbag, creep, to a man who stands up and takes responsibility to care for his brother and for his father. God changes people. And God massively changed Judah. 
amazing. But how did it happen? How did this change come about? Well, the change was gradual over 20 years, but step by step, God was at work to change this man's heart and his life. As we read through chapters 42 to 47, I think we can see at least three key steps that uh, God used to bring about this change. The first is a growing awareness of sin. Uh, In chapter 42, the uh, ten older brothers uh, come down for the first time to to Egypt to buy food. And Jacob at that time wouldn't let Benjamin go with them. Benjamin was too precious and he was worried that uh, something would happen to them. Probably with good reason based on what had happened before. And Joseph recognises his brothers, uh, but he doesn't let on who he is. They don't know that he is Joseph. And Joseph starts to uh, kind of work them over. He really messes with them and uh, helps them to face their guilt, uh, to face their shame and humble them. He accuses them of being spies. He throws them in jail for three days. And then uh, he sells them the grain they wanted and sends them home. But he keeps one brother with him as a kind of security to make sure that they come back. And he tells them, don't come back unless you bring your younger brother, Benjamin. You see, Joseph wanted to see his brother, and he ultimately wanted to bring the whole family down, and he knew the only way that could happen is if Benjamin came down to Egypt. And look what the brothers say to each other when they are confronted with this thought, oh, how are we going to bring Benjamin down? How's our dad ever going to let him go? We must have done something wrong. They said to each other, Obviously, we're being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. Just picture that. Joseph is down in the uh, pit. There, they're callously having lunch. And uh, Joseph is uh, pleading with them, please let me out, let me out. But they, they just ignore him. That's what they did. And that's why trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? I told you so. He was the responsible oldest brother who wasn't there right at that moment. But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. See, it's dawned on them. We did the wrong thing. And now we've got to account for that. You see, there's a growing awareness of their sin. But as the story goes on, there's also a taste of grace for these brothers. Uh, When they leave to go back to Canaan, Joseph secretly puts the money that they paid for the grain back into their bags. Now, why did he do that? It's interesting to speculate. He could have just been trying to make them, you know, feel more, you know, scared about coming back. Maybe it was to bring them back so they'd think, we better do this, otherwise he might chase after us and think we've stolen the money. Or it could just be a taste of grace that he's actually seen, these are my brothers. And he gave them the grain for free and returned the money that they paid. But in chapter 43, we see a real taste of grace. They come back for a second time to get more food. And this time, they bring Benjamin with them. Just as Joseph has said, don't come back without him. Uh, But this time, instead of throwing them into jail, he invites them around for a a banquet. And as they're going into the banquet, they are scared stiff. They're scared that it's a trap because they've taken the money. Oh, no, 
He knows we've taken the money. They're going to steal our donkeys now and they're going to capture us and throw us in jail. But it wasn't a trap. Joseph was one in, in out the back in one of the rooms and he was weeping because he'd seen his younger brother, Benjamin. And then he seats them all in order of age, all 12, all 11 brothers in order. And they were astonished. They were seated before him in order by age from the firstborn to the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment. You know, what is, he seems to know us and he's treating us like we're long lost brothers or something. Portions were served to them from Joseph's table and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. They drank and got intoxicated with Joseph. That's an interesting verse to find in the Bible, isn't it? They drank and let's just say uh, they uh, had a good time together. That's probably the best way to interpret uh, what's being said there. So here is the ruler of all Egypt welcoming these hillbillies from up in Canaan with this amazing feast. And uh, they're, they're blown away by the generosity that he's treating them with. They would have expected him to be angry, to throw them in jail, maybe even to punish them. But instead, he welcomes them with open arms and, uh, and treats them with grace. I wonder if that reminds you of anybody else. It was Jesus, wasn't it, who uh, ate often with tax collectors and sinners, the kind of people that no one else wanted to hang out with. Jesus welcomed into his own family. It reminds me of the Presbyterian minister who invited Rosaria Butterfield into his home and, uh, and shared his table with her. This is a beautiful taste of God's grace. And it, it kind of broke down the hard hearts of these brothers. And eventually we come to step three, There was repentance and faith. Repentance is a word that means turning around, doing a U-turn in your life. And faith is a word that means to trust. The brothers left for home again, and uh, Joseph has one more trick up his sleeve. This is what we read about earlier. Uh, He puts his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. It's it's a setup. And then he sends men after them, and they they say, someone's stolen the cup. And the brothers say, that's terrible, we wouldn't do that. Anyone who finds, anyone who's stolen that cup deserves to die and become a slave. And of course, they open the bags and they find the cup in Benjamin's bag. And the brothers all go back and they fall down on their faces, all of 11 brothers before Joseph. Remember his dream in chapter 37? They fall on their faces and they... uh, are now humbled and they confess. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. God has done it. Notice how they are now God conscious. God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. No excuses. No lies. So what's going to happen now? Will they abandon the other son of Rachel and Jacob? Well, no, they won't, as we saw before. Judah steps up and takes responsibility. God has changed him. God has convicted him of his sin. God has astonished him with a taste of grace from this ruler of Egypt. 
And now through Joseph, God has brought him to his knees to beg for mercy and acknowledge God and even to offer himself and give up the rest of his life in place of his brother. Judah's change of heart is not just something that means that he feels sorry for what he did. We often think that that's what repentance means. I'm sorry that I did that, especially if the consequences are bad and we're experiencing, oh, I'm sorry, I wish I didn't do that. That's a good start. But repentance is actually a whole change of attitude that works itself out in changed actions. And that's what we see here with this man, isn't it? He's willing to give himself so that uh, his younger brother, Benjamin, can go free. He's a changed man. And the flip side of this is that uh, Judah puts his faith in Joseph. In the next chapter, uh, Joseph reveals who he is and then he tells them to go back home and bring Jacob and the whole family down to Egypt. That's a big thing to do, to travel, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometres on a donkey and bring a very reluctant father and all the wives and all the other children all down to, to settle in a new country. But he's come to trust Joseph as God's king. And he does exactly what he tells him. So this is how it happened. Step by step, God brought the people to the ruler that he'd raised up so that they could be saved. And I think this is exactly what we see in the New Testament, isn't it? God has raised up a ruler for us, raised him up literally from the dead and appointed him to rule. And he offers salvation forgiveness and eternal life to all who will bow the knee to him. And then he's at work by his spirit, bringing hard-hearted people to be changed so that we do bow the knee and receive the grace that he has given. And I think we see these kind of steps as well. You know, I can see it in my own story. This happened uh, quite a few years ago now more than 40 years ago when uh, I was in year 11 at school. Uh, I grew up in a, in a family that uh, I was a believer in God. I was even taken along to the local Anglican church to get baptised when I was about a month old and confirmed when I was in year three because they like to do it before you get able, old enough to uh, make your own decisions in life. And uh, that's how it was. I was officially an Anglican and I was, a pretty, I was a quite a good person and uh, I went away to a boarding school in year 11 because our school only went to year 10. And when I was there, I met this girl. And uh, there's a bit of romance story here for you. I met this girl and I said, uh, maybe we should go out together. That was my line. And uh, she said, no way. <clears throat> I said, why not? She said, because you're not a Christian. I said, what do you mean I'm not a Christian? I'm born in Australia. I'm not kind of a Muslim. I'm a good person, I've been baptised and confirmed, I believe in God. She says, but you don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. And that was a bit of a shock to me because I didn't even know you had to know Jesus. And uh, uh, over time, I experienced, I, I became conscious, therefore, of my own shortcoming in that way. I actually wanted to please God and do the right thing by him. But I became aware that I didn't know the first thing about how to relate to God and be a Christian. But people showed me tastes of grace. The, the Christians group at the school uh, took time with me to talk to me about Jesus. 
they welcomed me into their circle. They took me to the, uh, one night in particular to the school chaplain and he, uh, he talked to me about what it meant to uh, come to Jesus and receive him as my Lord and Saviour and invited me to pray. And through that, God changed my life. He changed it then at that moment and he continues to change it all through my life. I still experience a growing awareness of sin and tastes of grace that leads me to repentance and faith. This is how God works. In case you're wondering, we did go out for a while but then we broke up. It's not my current wife. <laughs> Just in case you were thinking that was the story. Get that out there. Now, <clears throat> I reckon that most of us here tonight who are Christians, whether you're like me, it was happened years ago, I'm looking over on this side of the room, or whether it's something that's uh, happened more recently, uh, you can tell a similar story of how God used these things to bring you to Jesus. But for those here tonight who aren't yet Christians, uh, I want you to know that this is how it happens. It's not some kind of mystical bolt from the blue. It's through the everyday circumstances of life and through other people that God is at work. He's even brought you here tonight to hear this, you know. And I want to ask you tonight to uh, consider this question. Which one of these steps has God brought you to so far? Have you become aware of your sin and you need to do something to get right with God? Have you experienced tastes of his grace? Have you come to the point of repentance and faith? God changes lives. God changed Judah. And uh, he did it step by step. And we also see, finally and much more briefly, the outcome of this. The outcome, firstly, is forgiveness and reconciliation. In chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. Here's how it goes. Look, your eyes and my brother Benjamin's eyes can see that it is I, Joseph, who am speaking to you. The one you sold into slavery, it's me. Tell my father all about my glory in Egypt and about all you have seen. Go and be an evangelist, he's saying. Tell him that I'm here and I'm the king and bring my father here quickly. And Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept and afterward his brothers talked with him. These are the people who'd sold him into slavery. He could be treating them very badly, but he's weeping. He's kissing, he's hugging, he's talking with them. There is forgiveness from this king for those who treated him so badly. Enemies have become friends, even more than friends. They've become family. He loves them as brothers. And then, along with the forgiveness and the reconciliation, there is more and more blessing poured out on them. Joseph arranges wagons to uh, take them back home, chauffeur-driven, back to Canaan to pick up Jacob and all the wives and children and bring them back. In fact, Jacob is very scared about leaving the land, the promised land and uh, going down to Egypt. And uh, when he sees the wagons, he goes, wow, these brothers might be telling me the truth this time. Where did they get these wagons from? And on the way, 
God gives him a wonderful word of assurance. Chapter 46, Jacob has a dream and God says, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. Isn't that wonderful? Blessing upon blessing. They all come down safely and then Pharaoh himself gives them land to live on. The best land in the whole of Egypt, in the whole country. The kind of place where 70 people can grow to become a great nation and uh, eventually come out again back to conquer the promised land. And so that takes us to the last one. The outcome of this was progress towards God's ultimate plan, who was Jesus. They all get down to Egypt, ready to grow into a great nation and come out 400 years later, like God had said in the Exodus. And through Judah, even through the dodgiest of circumstances, as uh, he was uh, in his uh, union with Tamar, uh, they had twins, and one of them was the next in the line that came from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to Perez, all the way down to David and all the way down to Jesus himself. And so if you open up your New Testament and read the family tree of Jesus, you don't have to read far, only about three or four verses, and you get mention of Judah and Tamar, the ancestors of Jesus. God uses even the craziest of situations, the most sinful people, to bring about his good plans for us. Isn't that amazing? So today we've seen this wonderful truth. God changes people. Even a scumbag or a gronk like Judah, God can change them. And that's a huge encouragement to us. As I finish up tonight, I just want to show you what an encouragement is. It's an encouragement to anyone here who thinks, how could I ever be accepted by God? If the sons of Jacob, people like Judah, can be humbled and forgiven and saved, then so can you. If a self-righteous teenager like me who didn't have a clue about Jesus can turn to him and be saved, well, so can you. If a woman like Rosaria Butterfield uh, can come and read the Bible and come to have her whole life transformed, then God can do it in your life too. God changes people. If you're not yet a Christian, why don't you ask God to do that work in your life? But even for those of us here who are Christians, sometimes we have this problem. Sometimes we become... Uh, And sometimes it's the work of the Spirit himself who makes us particularly sensitive to our own sin and shortcomings. Maybe there's something obvious going on in your life that you're thinking of right now and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm worthy of God. Uh, Of course you're not. None of us are. We're only saved by Jesus and his grace to us. But the problem is when we're conscious of sin and we're thinking like that, We can be tempted to be like Judah and to kind of distance ourselves from God, keep away from him, avoid him and his people. But I want to say to you tonight, don't make that mistake. Don't go down the path of Judah. Instead of running from God, look to Jesus. He welcomed sinners and tax collectors and over time he changed them. He welcomed them. 
He's already welcomed you if you're a Christian once. And he will continue to welcome you. If you're conscious of sin, don't avoid God, but run to God and seek his mercy and seek his help to keep being changed. He'll welcome you. And he'll give you all you need and even more, blessings upon blessings. And he'll even use you to bring about his plans. How amazing is that? But it's also an encouragement when you look at others and you think to yourself, how could they ever come to Christ? Well, we've seen tonight that God can bring whoever he wants to Jesus, transform their hearts and lives. He doesn't promise to bring every person to Jesus, but those whom he has chosen to work in, he will do it inevitably. And so in your family, that person that you love who is stubbornly resisting and doesn't think they need Jesus or even refuses to talk to you about it and heaps abuse on you for being a Christian, God can change them. He can. At your workplace or in your classroom or on your soccer team or wherever it is that you hang out, the people who seem far away from God, God can change them. Uh, if you're a parent and your heart is breaking for your child, or if you're a child and your heart is breaking for your parent, God can change them. The person in jail, the uh, person who seems like they're totally down the wrong track because they've just been, who knows what, involved in sexual abuse, involved in slavery, involved in some corruption, whatever it is. Don't write them off. Don't cancel them. Pray for them because God can change them. God changes people. Don't give up praying. In fact, praying is the very best thing we can do, isn't it? Because if God changes people, it's God who does it, not us, ourselves or to each other. We need to pray. Don't give up praying for people. Don't give up loving people because God uses tastes of grace to soften people's hearts. And who knows, your generosity, your forgiveness, your kindness, your compassion, God may well use to bring that person a step closer to Jesus. Don't give up praying, don't give up loving, and don't give up pointing people to Jesus as God's king, the one that he has raised up for us, just like he raised up Joseph for those Judah and his brothers. He's raised up Jesus for us, the one and only saviour who will give us everything when we bow the knee to him. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for this amazing story and the way that you are at work in this man Judah's life. Thank you for the way that you changed him. Thank you for the way that you have done this again and again and again through the Bible and through history and even today in this room tonight. Lord, please help us to know this so that we might trust you, that we might pray to you, that we might Know in our hearts that you can change us and that you can change others. And Lord, help us, Lord, in this, not to give up on anybody, but to pray and to love and to point people to Jesus. And we ask for your mercy that through our efforts, as feeble 
and tainted with sin as they always will be, that you might use us and that you might draw people to yourself through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.